Hello, this is Kat. This is Phoebe. We're Feminine Chaos. And we're joined today by Lee Stein. Lee, say hello and tell us who you are. Hello, great to be back. I'm Lee Stein. I've written five books, including the novel Self Care, and I'm a chronically online elder millennial. That's what I want on my tombstone. (laughs) Chronically online elder millennial? It could be the cause of death for some people. Like, there could be a. I think there should just be a specific graveyard just for that situation. So we could be together. Yeah, Yeah. a giant mausoleum, right? It'll it'll be like uh, like in LA where they have like the the wall of like boxes that has everyone's remains in it because they can't bury people in the ground for some reason. I don't know. They're weird in California. So, so Lee, I, I hear you're extremely controversial and should be canceled. And here on the Jerry Springer edition of Feminine Chaos, <laughs> we have behind the curtain all the people who were mad at you on Twitter. No, we do not. Um, and you are the father. No, oh, sorry. <laughs> exactly, exactly. To- totally different 90s talk show. Okay. So, yeah, Lee. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, just real quick um, for those not in the know, Lee wrote a viral piece on LitHub called Book Talk is Good, actually, on the undersung joys of a vast and multifarious platform. Subtitle, Lee Stein wonders why more book people don't embrace the publishing juggernaut. Well, the book people were not happy about this. <laughs> you were just asking questions, Lee, but you're not allowed to do that. So um, tell us about your your journey on to Book Talk and how you came to write this piece. Yeah. So I I'm working on a novel that is a gothic novel and someone had told me that if you're writing a gothic novel like in in the past gothic novels always had like a young woman like she's usually an orphan and she's like stuck in this like country estate and mysteries ensue but it's hard to write a gothic novel today because you have to keep the woman in the house and today it's very hard to keep women in the house as we all know we leave our houses all the time so it struck me that I could find a reason to keep my characters in the Gothic novel inside the house. If I set it in one of these TikTok hype houses, which were popular a couple years ago at the peak of the pandemic where all they, all these like glamorous, hot young people all lived in the same mansion in LA and created TikTok content. So then I had to learn TikTok and that's what initially got me on the platform. And I really dragged my feet about it. And I didn't want to get on the platform because I didn't understand it at all. And finally, I hired like a 22-year-old college grad to like hold my hand and take me to TikTok. And then once I learned it, I was like, oh, I get it now. And then I got on to BookTok. Wait, sorry. Can I just quickly ask you, did, you, did this 22-year-old, was this in person, the handholding, or was this all virtual? This was all virtual. Okay. Because holding hands during the pandemic sounds like, with with 22-year-olds, no less, sounds like a really good way to spread germs. (laughs) Yeah, this was all virtual, um, but she introduced me to BookTok, which is the corner of TikTok where young women in particular create these viral videos about books. And a lot of the times they're like crying on camera. So the books that do really well on BookTok are often like really emotional books, like Song of Achilles, the Colleen Hoover novels, obviously. And so I became fascinated with this like internet subculture. So it was like part research for my novel, part just the fact that I've been on the internet since the late 90s. I'm really fascinated by internet subcultures. And so I started really getting into book talk. And then I started sending copies of my novel self-care to these book talk creators to create videos. So there have been like 60 or 70 videos that have now been created, excuse me, about self-care that were not created by me, but created by these women on book talk. And I just think it's like a fascinating community and I've really fallen in love with it. And now I, now I make my own videos on TikTok as well. So I wrote a piece 
for LitHub basically asking the question, like, why are all these literary writers I know who are all broke and depressed and wondering why their books aren't selling more copies? I mean, most books never sell more than 5,000 copies. I think the stat is like 98% of books sell fewer than 5,000 copies. Why wouldn't they also be curious to look at the part of the internet where like people are buying millions of copies of books? There's just this disconnect between literary MFA world and book publishing world or or fandom, the, 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 the readership of fandom. Um, and so I wanted to cross that bridge and I fell into the mud. So I'm curious, how would you describe as an expert the general attitude of literary writers? These are, you know, the serious writers, the MFA people, the ones who, you know, who publish at like the cool indie presses. How would you describe the overall attitude of that contingent of writers towards TikTok? They just come up with so many reasons to dismiss it. So they say like young people don't read. That's not true. They say it's just romance and fantasy. That's not true. They say it's just the same 20 books over and over again, by which they mean Colleen Hoover, dark romance novels, Taylor Jenkins Reid, who writes upmarket fiction like Daisy Jones and the Six, um, or fantasy like Sarah J. Moss. So they think it's those same books over and over again. It's not. There's actually so many young women on TikTok that are like dedicating themselves to making videos that are like, there's so much more than these 20 books. Like their, their whole life's mission is to show other books than those 20 books. But if you don't spend time on the platform, of course, you would never see that content. So um, there's an idea that the women on BookTok are stupid, that they're annotating books with those little sticky, those little um, transparent sticky notes that they're over annotating like stupid romance novels. <laughs> it's just so snobby to me. It's like, why are we looking down on people who read books? Like, isn't it exciting? Like maybe they start with romance novels and then they start reading other books too. Like, shouldn't we be, shouldn't we be pro reading? <laughs> this is interesting. Cause it's like, it's gatekeeping, but it's also this sort of accusation. It's gatekeeping in the name of fighting classism, right? Like there's this kind of, idea that you're being you know you are the underdog because you're not making money but you're also gatekeeping because nobody without an mfa which as i understand it costs a lot of money um and you know i'm sure it involves cultural capital to find your way to having one or whatever um yeah it just it's it's confusing in that way do any of us have an mfa i don't i don't even entirely know what one is so no I mean, I know what it's called. I know, I know it's a master of fine arts, but, but no, I, I don't have one. So there are over 200 creative writing MFA programs in the country. It's a huge moneymaker for universities. And one of my issues with like the MFA industrial complex is that I feel like it teaches writers to write for an audience of other writers. So they want to write the kind of fiction, the kind of essays, the kind of poetry that the members of their cohort will think is smart and interesting. And so that's a very rarefied group of people. Like those are readers in your MFA cohort, but they're a very specific kind of reader. And there's a mm -hmm. total disconnect between like the reading public. And so what often happens is writers pay 20, 30, 40, $50,000 for their MFA in creative writing. They have their thesis manuscript. They would like to get it published and I guess recoup that investment, right? They'd like to get a 50 or $100,000 book deal. And then they cannot find an agent, they cannot find a publisher, they cannot find an audience for this book that they've written for the audience of their MFA cohort. And then I work as a book coach. So what in my experience, people with MFAs come to me and they're like, can you help me figure out how to sell my book that I wrote in my MFA program? And then I work on that. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the money aspect of this, I want to just like pause on for a minute because the literary aspects are, you know, exciting and probably maybe more exciting. But the the money part is just interesting because I feel like there's this culture um, in the writing world where it's like it's very, you know, like as you've written about, Lee, like this that sort of taboo, you know, to like writing for free, all of this. And yet it does seem like the one thing that gets a pass is to pay tens of thousands of dollars slash go into tens of thousands of dollars of debt for a degree um, that you don't need to be a writer and that could potentially just lead to much, much more frustration if it doesn't work out or if it doesn't work out, you know, on a grand scale. But you get invited to the good parties after that. that isn't it worth it? But that's Okay, so that, that gets to kind of this other question I have maybe, which is just about like writer culture versus like actually writing or indeed reading anything because it seems like a lot of this and I, I thought about this very tangentially with the New York Times letter about trans issues there's nothing to do with what we're talking about but just in terms of like lists of people and sort of cliques and all of this and it just seems like all of a lot of this has to do with kind of like um alliances forming online and not like who's actually reading books who's actually writing books that sort of thing certainly there are tribes and cliques and I have always been kind of an outsider. Um, I have an unusual educational background. I dropped out of high school. I went to community college. Then I went to acting school. I wanted to be an actress. And I didn't finally get my, I finally got my bachelor's degree from Brooklyn College while like working full time as an adult in my 20s. And I don't have an MFA. So I have built my entire career as a writer on the internet. So I've always been kind of like an outsider or an observer. I definitely watch MFA culture and I've kind of like leapfrogged my way into some of the same publications, especially as a poet, like I'm on the Poetry Foundation website, um, but it's all thanks to the internet. And so that's partly why it's like so fun and natural for me to, I mean, once I got it, once I had my you know 22 year old assistant, but it, then it became natural to make friends over on this other corner of the internet because that's, that's what I've done for over 20 years. But the people in MFA world are in a very insular little group. And so once that group turned on me, I mean, it's I feel like I self-owned here. It's kind of ironic because in my LitHub essay, I talk about this writer who does have an MFA, um, Stephanie Dandler. And I talk about a piece she wrote for Bustle about how she tried to get on BookTok, but it just wasn't for her. She's too smart for BookTok. <laughs> and then I kindly kind of, and so then BookTok turned on her. And I'm like, oh my God, I just did the same thing to myself because now I said, I'm, I'm, I'm above you guys on Twitter and they all turned on me. So I just had a question about the, oh, sorry, just the categories here. So are literary writers, like sort of literary fiction, the ones who take themselves seriously, whatever, is that now nowadays interchangeable with people who have MFAs? Like, is that how, are these the same group of people? Are there a lot of sort of serious literary writers with, or who fancy themselves that whatever without an MFA? Um, and conversely, are there people getting MFAs and, in order to do, um, you know, intentionally more mainstream or genre writing? I would say they're synonymous. So when I say literary writers, it's MFA people. So like, if you can imagine like a, a Riverhead hardcover with like a graphic cover, like most of those debuts are written by people with MFAs. I'm sure there are exceptions to this. But interestingly, I had a phone call with someone last week who's in an MFA program. She wanted my advice about book publishing. And she's probably my age. And she said that a lot of people in her MFA cohort are young people in their 20s writing fantasy novels. This is fascinating to me. And so I wonder if actually you are going to see more genre fiction coming from MFA programs just because writer, if there are young people that are like 
wow, I love fantasy. Like I want to write fantasy novels. Are they thinking to themselves, where could I go to learn to do this? And they're going to writing programs. I don't know, but it's very interesting. So just really quick, I feel like we may be getting a little bit too publishing insidery and in some of the way that we're describing this for um, for the feminine chaos audience who's not necessarily publishing professionals to um, to be like picking up what we're putting down. So when you say like a Riverhead novel. Yeah, I, I was lost. I'm, I'm the feminine chaos audience who didn't know what that was. It was, was, was nodding along as if I knew. Go ahead. Oh, wait, wait. I want to turn around and look at my own bookshelf. Um, literary novels on my bookshelf that are by people with MFAs, Luster by Raven Leilani, um, Carmen Maria Machado, I think The Need by Helen Phillips, I think Lisa, Lisa Tadeo has an MFA. She writes like she has an MFA. Totally. These are like, um, these are like the books, I don't know, how do I describe literary? So, I, okay, here's what I can say. I can say the difference between literary fiction and more commercial fiction, like the kind of stuff Cat writes. Cat writes thrillers. So that's commercial fiction. Literary fiction, it's not plot driven. The surprise or the twist is usually something that's like formally or structurally inventive and it has beautiful language. So a literary novel, you read it and you read a sentence and you're like, my God, who wrote this sentence? Versus commercial fiction, you're reading it to be thrilled, to be entertained for a propulsive plot. It's a book you can't put down. And so the surprise, surprise or the twist is not in the quality of the language it, or the structure. It's in the, the plot. Mm-hmm. You're like, my God. Who my wrote God. This? Who Locked wrote up, depraved, <laughs> nose in a garbage disposal. Nose in the garbage disposal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that's interesting because, like, when I read Cat, I, I, I'm I impressed with the language and the plot. You know what I mean? Well, like, Cat's a very yeah. good writer. I mean, Cat has it all. She does. I write literary thrillers. Can I say I write literary thrillers? Yeah. Can that be, like, I think my... So. I straddle the genres, um, but you know, I I've always thought that it was good to you know to focus more on the types of books that people actually want to buy, um, which you know makes thrillers a good place to be. Airport books, airport fiction. Um, so okay. Now we've discussed. Actually, can I tell you guys a quick story about um, about Lisa Tadeo's book Animal? Uh, Lee, I think you recommended this to me, and yeah, I, loved I started it. trying. Yeah, I did not. Um, so I started trying to read it, and I was like, I got like maybe a hundred pages in, and I was like, I'm just not. This is not for me. Um, so I gave it to my dad because he's just he's just retired, and he's reading basically everything that he can get his hands on, and. He he came back and he was like, I read it. It was weird. <laughs> but I guess he liked it. So um, that's my Lisa Tadeo it story. Is weird. I just like when I read Lisa Tadeo, it's like her prose is so hypnotic. It, it it has like this kind of Joan Didion, like despairing, but like, I don't know, riveting atmosphere. Which is the, oh, I definitely started one of her books. Oh, yeah. Three Women, you probably women. did. That's what, yeah, yeah, I did not finish it. But yes. Mm-hmm. So my dismay, my dismay at like writers in curiosity about book talk, it's like, so, so the best-selling author in America right now is Colleen Hoover. She writes dark romance novels. Um, her most recent one that came out in October, it starts with us, which is like a follow-up to her viral. It ends with us. It sold 800,000 copies on release day. That's more than a Stephen King novel. So it's fascinating to me that the so many writers I know have never even heard of Colleen Hoover, which is like saying you don't know who Stephen King is when like Carrie comes out or something. It's like everyone should be talking about this. 
And instead, writers are like, who is that? Like on the New York Times bestseller list, the paperback bestseller list out of 15 books, seven are by Colleen Hoover. Well, so something that I'm wondering, it seems almost like people are annoyed at popular authors as if they are like making an equation between like popular fiction with when the the thing where a bookstore switches over to selling mugs and and <laughs> you know decorative pillows and so forth which is like but those aren't actual books you know what i mean like this seems like not really quite right to treat entire literary genres as somehow not counting as as literature yeah i don't know well, so I, I want to get into, Lee, the reaction specifically to your piece and to you, but to just kind of like center the conversation a little bit more, um, something about the response of literary fiction writers and, and more specifically literary fiction Twitter, which is a bad place, to book talk is it reminds me a lot of the response to something like American Dirt, where so much of the resentment surrounding it, like it's framed in this very like, this is about ethics, this is about justice, this is about, you know, doing harm or not doing harm. But it really is under the surface about resenting the basic taste of the people who, you know, read fiction en masse. Does that ring true to you at all? Yes, it's like um, it's people who wouldn't want to write a book that would be sold at a Target. But like I go to a Target and there's so many books now at Target. I'm like, oh my God, look at all these books at Target. Like um, the last time I was in a Target, I was looking at all the books and this woman came up to me, this stranger, and started talking to me about how much she loves Colleen Hoover. It was just like an amazing moment. And I just think it's like exciting. Like I would love for someone to buy my novel self-care at Target. That would be, that would make me happy. Um, but yeah, it totally is. Um, yeah, looking down, looking down at the tastes of of the basic. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let's talk about what happened when your piece came out because it was wild. <laughs> I've never seen anything quite like this. Um, maybe a little bit like in my in my old glory days as a YA author, you know, running afoul of that crowd. But um, but you know, there was a sort of a similarly histrionic response to your piece why were people so mad about it so the the reason people were mad is the thesis of the piece so at the beginning of the piece I say why are my peers because I'm kind of straddling both worlds right like I write I mean I'm I'm a poet right so I'm kind of in this literary world and then I'm kind of in this like internet fandom and so at the start of the piece I say why are all these literary writers so incurious about this place. And Phoebe used the word annoyed. And, but I think it begins as a lack of curiosity. And then once I tell them about it, they're like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go over there. I'm not going to learn another platform. So then it becomes annoyance. So I said, why are they so incurious? And then over the course of the essay, I developed my thesis, which is that I think writers are depressed. I think their careers haven't turned out the way they hoped and expected. Like I look at Joan Didion and I thought like my whole life would be like, paid, I'd be paid to write a column and I would have like a beautiful house in Malibu or whatever. Like, it's like, it hasn't turned out as expected. We aren't making much, as much money as we expected. The competition is fierce. And so the only thing we have left is this idea that we have good taste. And so we're clinging to our own good taste because we can hold on to that and look down at these readers that are reading what we think of as trash, Colleen Hoover novels. Do you think that, how much do you think would have avoided all of the fury if instead of using the word depressed, you had used the word disillusioned. Hmm. I mean, it would have, because I'm just thinking like what you're describing to me sounds like 
something between depressed and dis- disillusioned, right? Because like, I know what you mean about like the vibe of the sort of broke writer on Twitter, angry that the world both isn't somehow like paying them a billion dollars, but also, you know, celebrating their extremely niche, whatever thing that they're doing. And I, I share this, I, I would like the world to pay me a billion dollars for my most niche interests. Who wouldn't? But, um, but I feel like you're also talking about sort of like expectations not being met, like people thinking that yes. they're going to live a certain kind of like Woody Allen movie intellectual life when they, it when what like what I took from your piece was really like that world does not exist. Um, you can mope about it or you can, you know, join the world that does exist. Yeah, no, I, I think the word disillusioned would be excellent. <laughs> Phoebe, why didn't you edit my piece that I didn't write for you? Do you, do you wish you'd picked that? I don't well, I mean, know. I'm not saying I, that, that it would be the same, like, right? Because it would still be a, like, you are also talking about the sort of mopey vibe, which is something different. Yeah, let me just read. I'm just going to read a couple sentences because this is this is what people are mad about. So this is what I actually wrote in the essay. When I scroll TikTok, I see creativity, joy, pleasure, energy, and a contagious enthusiasm for books. When I scroll past millennial and Gen X writers on Twitter or Instagram, I see the symptoms of major depressive disorder, fatigue and feelings of worthlessness, irritability, lack of pleasure. More than see it, I feel it. I'm there. And I come to you today to say, I thought I was making like an in-group joke about depression in the way that Jews can make in-group jokes about Jews. I thought I was saying like, you guys, I feel it. Like I'm depressed too. I'm with you. That's what I thought I was doing in the, in that passage on Twitter. When I was tweeting the link to my own article, I dashed off something that was maybe not as well considered as what I'd written in the piece. So when I tweeted, I said, my theory is that broke underappreciated clinically depressed writers are clinging to the one thing they have left their own good taste. And that's behind the snobbishness toward TikTok. This is the tweet that ruined my week, <laughs> this one tweet, <laughs> because this is what um, Noah Berlatsky. Oh, don't oh, say his oh. name. Oh, no. <laughs> retweeted and called me ableist. And so that brought all his fans. It brought all the boys oh. to the yard. Okay. I mean, I, I think the depression is one of these words that just has multiple meanings. Like there's Senator Fetterman, right? Who's like checked into the hospital with his depression. And then there's people being de- sort of Debbie Downers on Twitter. And I think these all fall under this, like there's just only one word for something that's got a lot of different qualities. Yeah. But also the notion that this is ableist. I mean, I, I love <laughs> well, ableist, the, ableist is just like a, I'm sorry, but a, the, the ableist accusation on social media is like a joke at this point. No, it's, I mean, yes and no, but it's very funny to me that like we now we, we've gotten to the point where, you know, there's this craving to belong to, you know, a marginalized identity group to the point where it's like, I'm depressed, hence I'm disabled. Hence, when you say something maybe like slightly dismissive or that could be construed as dismissive about depression, you're a bigot. (laughs) But I've seen this with COVID stuff. No, but I've seen this with like long COVID or just COVID, COVID or whatever, where there's this kind of like, you don't actually have to say in what sense you are identifying not as able, but like it can just be kind of gestured at. And nobody knows because it's on the computer. 
So maybe you are suffering a lot. Maybe not. Nobody's going to know. And like, you can just kind of gesture at this. I feel like this all has to do with people being behind the screens and um, nobody knowing what they're well, actually for sure. Seeing. But I think what's interesting is the creation of an antagonist. You know, it's like it's, you know, that that this is the purpose this serves is not necessarily to, to allow you to feel like you belong to a category. It's so that, you know, once you do this, you can manufacture this, you know, this nemesis, this villain um, who hates you because you're disabled um, or because you have long COVID or depression or because you're tired and um, and. You know, again, like as you as you said, I think on a recent podcast, and as you often say, Phoebe, um, that it allows an annoying situation to be framed as something like that's a gross ethical violation. Do I? Is, are you saying that I repeat myself because that's ableist? <laughs> it's ableist I a, against people who repeat themselves. I have a story. Okay, so the the last time I was accused of ableism was um, January 2017, the day of the Women's March. I was not wearing a pink hat. I was not in DC. I was at home as usual, moderating drama in the private Facebook community that I moderated of 40,000 people because a woman who had been denied, who didn't get accepted for a scholarship to my conference, um, manufactured a drama in her bitterness. And she accused um, my conference of being ableist because we had a panel discussion with the word crazy in the title because there was a writer from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on the panel. And that's literally a show about a woman who has, like, diagnosed mental illness. Yeah, I think she has borderline personality disorder. Yeah, yeah. And I had to spend the day of the Women's it's, March It's hashtag trying... own voices, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <laughs> but it is, it, like, literally is. Um, so we had to change the name of the panel. That's the last time I was accused of it. What, it, what was it... I want to say that you would have to change it to bananas, but then that's the name of a Woody Allen movie, and that could be problematic for other people. <laughs> Besides, a, ba- a banana resembles a penis, and mm. it's also a no-go. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody might be very triggered by just, you know, having to think about something, that shape. Well, so now what... I'm thinking about that shape, and now... Yeah. Anyway, Do moving you need, on. You need a moment? I need a moment. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, people just... Why were they... Oh, the the fury seemed... Like, so do people who are writing literary fiction want to make a lot of money or do they want to enjoy the fact that they don't? Like, I'm thinking about just sort of like the whole very 90s idea of the band that hasn't sold out. You know, is there some glory in, you know, especially I'm thinking about people who maybe have a day job and are doing something else, but then the writing they do is like, are there people who just don't want to make money from writing? And then I think they want their books to be read by the right people. And so I think they, they tell themselves they would rather have a hundred influential tastemakers who read whatever, who read the right books read their masterpiece than have, you know, 10,000 basic girls buy it at Target and leave them two-star reviews. Hmm. I see. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So simultaneous to this. So my piece comes out on Monday. I'm being called ableist. People are saying, you know, walk it back, apologize. I'm not apologizing. The next day, um, the literary magazine and writing, um, writing, what's the word I'm looking for? they're just a writing juggernaut catapult says that they are folding their online magazine and they are folding their writing program. They offer tons of writing classes. I've taught for them in the past. Almost everyone I know teaches for them. So, so many writers I know make a living 
at least part-time teaching for catapult. So the next day they said they were folding and it's just a bleak moment because the literary writers who relied on places like catapult to publish their literary essays, um, they're losing all, there's fewer and fewer places to publish a literary essay. And so here is a representative tweet. This is from a, a publisher of an independent press. So not a big five publisher, but a smaller indie publisher. Um, They said, I don't mean to sound the alarm, but every single day it becomes harder to see how we can continue to promote books when all the outlets that publish literary pieces time to publication are shuttering and hardly any newspapers publish book reviews anymore. And don't say book talk. I'm not being a snob. Literary books rarely work over there. Poetry and essays don't really work over there. For a literary publisher with a small staff, we're not blowing up our books on book talk. Shut up. Why is this person wrong, Lee? (laughs) I feel like I'm throwing these people a life raft and they're saying like, no, thank you. I'd rather live tweet as the Titanic goes down. Huh? I'm literally saying to them, there is a part of book talk that is literary fiction, literary nonfiction essays. There's a creator on book talk named Eleanor Stern. All she does is like post stuff that's in the Paris review and like small literary magazines. And her fans are in awe of her. Like they think she's a magician and they're like, how do you find out about this stuff? Like, what is Granta? Like, how would you even know what Granta is? And Eleanor has created this whole Google Doc for her fans to go read all the literary stuff she talks about on TikTok, which says to me, there is such a hungry audience for this like niche literary kind of writing. If you can just get it on TikTok, if you can figure out a way to translate it to this Gen Z audience that likes watching videos, there's your audience. Well, like, okay, you can so I have two it. thoughts about this. One is, is it all ageist? Okay, is that it? Is it less, not less about class than about age, but is it both? Like, is it this sort of that a certain type of writer, whatever their actual age, like wants to be writing for 40 year olds and is sort of horrified by or scared by 20 year olds? Like, is that some it? Of could it? be. I think millennials are realizing like we're not the ones creating the culture anymore. Like, Gen Z is creating the culture. Like, how many pieces come across your feed on Twitter? that are like things that happened on TikTok that reporters are writing. It used to be that journalists would write about whatever happened on Twitter, but now they're writing about whatever happens on TikTok. The story of the week is about this guy on TikTok, this this man, this boomer, whose daughter started a TikTok account to make videos about her dad's novel. And they're very touching. They're like tearjerker videos. And this is the number one novel on Amazon now. It's beating Colleen Hoover. The age thing. I just want to like stick with that for a second, which is just like, so I'm 39 and I still get told like by editors to make things accessible. It's never to younger audiences. It's always, and I'm talking about writing for the internet mainly, that I need to make it accessible to an older audience who maybe doesn't know about the internet or whatever. And I often wonder in these cases, like whether in fact that is true, because it seems like there are a lot of very online people a lot older than I am, but also- if I'm 39, there's a lot of people a lot younger than I am, you know, and there is this sort of like, do they even exist kind of thing where it sort of seems like any kind of outlet that takes itself seriously doesn't even try for the younger people a lot of the time. Um, But I also just was thinking about the snobbery angle. And can I share a story from a long time ago? Sure. Okay. So it's probably not the first time I'm sharing it. So again, please know, um, no ableism against story repetition. But when I was in college, I didn't know what sort of writing I wanted to do. And I had in high school done a lot of sort of like fiction, creative writing, that sort of thing. And was that was what I assumed I would do. I'd never really even like heard of opinion writing, thought about it, whatever. So I went to a meeting of my college's uh, literary magazine. And 
the entire point of this meeting, it was these older, mainly boys, although I guess men, whatever, they were, would have been um, probably about 21 or 22. They seemed ancient to me at the time. Um, <laughs> they fielded submissions from students, but they o- virtually only published professional writers, like grown-ups in the world who were, you know, established professional writers, but they would put out calls for submissions to undergrads, including myself. I was not published. They did not want my crap. Um, But they basically, at this meeting, and it wasn't, I had not submitted anything at this meeting, they just mocked everything. This juvenile (laughs) writing. Submissions from students. Yes, from students, from a bunch of 19-year-olds sending in you know, their love stories or whatever. And they just spent the, the whole meeting was one by one going through this pile of of absolutely immature garbage. Ha ha ha. And I just like, I could not make sense of the whole purpose of this endeavor. Like why have a student publication that exists just to like mock student writing? And then, yeah, then I, you know, switched on over to the school paper where the idea was student writing and nobody was like, oh my goodness, why are you not, you know, why is this not a David Brooks column? Why have you written, (laughs) you know, why have you written the sort of like, you know, that sort of the cliche of like, oh, that's the sort of thing a sophomore in college is going to be like talking about at 4am. Well, that's the idea because these people were right. that age. Um, so I just, I feel like that taught me rather young that like a certain type of writing and a certain type of person often go hand in hand and like, and and the mockery, not not the cruelty, maybe the, is this like the cruelty is the point? Do I have to credit Adam Serwer with this? Um, but like, <laughs> but like the mockery is the point, you know? And like, that's part of it. It's like, we're like this, they're like that. And that's kind of the whole idea. Yeah, but that's exactly what I'm saying is that it's just like clinging to your good taste when you have nothing else. So this would have been in like 2002. So I guess not much has changed. So something that just occurred to me, and I wonder if you guys want to weigh in on this, is that the response to the folding of Catapult's teaching arm, um, its class's arm, and the attitude, Phoebe, that, that you're describing, where it's like, there's something about the sense that it's more valid and more um, like prestigious and exciting to be in a position to judge the writing of others, to tell other people how to do it. Um, mm. and to be kind of a gatekeeper for how writing should be than to just write yourself and to write stuff that a lot of people find enjoyable. Like, is there something to that? Like, critic- you mean criticism versus production? The, the the devastation of, you know, someplace like Catapult saying, we're not going to offer these classes anymore, which is how a lot of writers, you know, that was like their primary source of income. It wasn't writing books. The writing books was just kind of like, like a side thing. And, you know, as Lee was saying, like here with book talk, you know, if you can figure out how to use that platform, here's an opportunity to actually like, you know, pivot into making more of a living, at least from the thing that is ostensibly your primary trade, which is writing books. And yet there's this big resistance to that. And at the same time, this outpouring of like dismay and mourning when the opportunity to tell other people how to write disappears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's insightful. And it's like, for the listeners who don't know this, it's like, yeah, I don't make a living writing books. I make a living teaching and coaching and book writing books is what I love, but it's not how I make my living. It's not how most writers, most literary writers 
make their living, they make it through teaching. And I would just add like, if your book flops, let's say you get a book deal and your book comes out and it sells, it sells less than 2000 copies, like most books do. It's very, very hard to ever get another book deal. Like those sales numbers count. So I'm saying to you, like, here's an opportunity to like boost those numbers so that you can continue your career. Like you can continue writing the next book. I was just going to say this, this pivots into what happened next to me on Twitter, which is that when I didn't apologize for being an ableist or walk back anything I said, then um, the tides turned to mocking me for charging $99 for teaching a class to help writers learn how to get their books on BookTok. So it went from calling me ableist to calling me a grifter and a girl boss, which is so funny. <laughs> and my life has come full circle now. That was pretty incredible. This is what your book self-care is basically about, you know, for those not in the know. And it's a really, really good book. Uh, if you have not it read is. self-care, it, I, I you should it. buy it. Um, yeah. I just was thinking, though, about this age thing and about sort of like age and authority. Like an MFA program, the people teaching are, you know old and established, right? Whereas if you're talking about people, you know, whose authority comes from, you know, their platform, you know, and their influence in one way or another, like it is, again, it's about gatekeeping, but it's sort of intertangled. It's yeah. Tangled up with age, right? Yes. Yes. No, I think that's really smart connection to the platform thing because it's like, I, since I don't have, like, I don't have that credential that they have, but I have like the internet. And so I've built a platform online. I'm known for certain things as a writer because I've just spent all this time putting my stuff out there on the internet. So I've built a platform and a lot of these TikTok creators who are young are building these huge platforms on TikTok. And almost every day I'm now seeing book deal announcements of TikTok creators who are getting book deals. Um, and it's not just nonfiction. So it's not just like cookbooks from TikTok creators. It's like novels too. So the plat- there's like two paths. There's like two forks in the road if you're a writer. You can go down the build a platform on the internet route, or you can go the credential MFA literary prizes, um, publishing and, and print literary magazines. It just takes, it's going to take you 20 years, but you can go down that mm-hmm. route instead. And the other thing I'd add about the age thing, when you're talking about It's just hilarious what you said about making things accessible to an older audience, I think, but it's true that the older audience is still reading articles on the internet. The younger audience is just watching video content. That's how they want to consume content is via video. Mm -hmm. But all the major publications, every publication you've heard of, including the New Yorker, is now on TikTok. So they can reach the younger audience. You have to find a way to turn your content into videos if you want to capture the attention of that younger audience as your audience is like literally aging and dying. So I'm curious, you know, when the New Yorker, for instance, puts content on TikTok, does it draw people from TikTok onto their main website to actually read the work there? Or is it just, does it just exist in this video bubble where, you know, people watch the video and then they move on? It's hard to say. I think the New Yorker is new on TikTok. They're there. I, I don't want to shame them because I want to give them credit for trying. But it's like, um, it's pretty funny. They're making book talk videos like they're making like, here's five books. Like it looks just like a book talk video. It's incredible. So I don't know if it's translating into subscribers. I don't know what their their strategy is. But like a, an example of like a successful um, media TikTok account is Planet Money. They have like a viral popular TikTok account where they're making like original videos 
about the economy, about finance that are reaching a younger audience around the same subjects that they would talk about on the show. So I, I don't know how the numbers are translating into listeners of that show or podcast, but they're a success story if someone wants to look them up. So tell us about like your average successful book talk video. Like, can you, can you paint a picture for us? What would that look like? <laughs> okay. So there's three types of content on TikTok. For a video to go viral, it has to either be entertaining, inspirational, or educational. And so I think um, the case study of, I'm just going to look up the name of this book. It's Stone Maidens. So this woman made an account for her father's novel, Stone Maidens, about a serial killer. And he's like a very, um, just like a very average looking boomer. I think they live in Vermont. She just kind of recorded her dad like wearing suspenders, like walking through his garden and said, my dad has been working on this book for like 14 years. And it, it makes you cry because it's so inspiring because you're just watching this like totally average, ordinary person toil away at something. And then the fact that his daughter made this video and then she does a follow-up video where she shows her dad how many views it has and how many people have bought the book. And then he starts crying and you're like, Oh my God, it's just like such a feel good story. And that's one of the things I say in my book talk article is that like, we, our lives are hard enough. Like we want happy endings. And this is a perfect example of a story with a happy ending because that view, that video was viewed um, 44 million times. And now his book is number one on Amazon. Okay. So my next question is, Obviously, that's a very specific situation. Like for people who are trying to harness that same energy intentionally, like how do you replicate? <laughs> how do you replicate something like that? If you're if you're going on TikTok yourself, you know, trying to make content about your work um, or about other stuff, right? So you you can't be too blatantly self promotional. Is that part of it? You shouldn't do anything self promotional. So the thing I'm saying is that there is a part of TikTok called Book Talk where creators make videos about books. You do not have to make the videos about your book. In fact, I would advise against it. Because no one wants to watch QVC. No one wants to watch you holding up your book and explaining what it's about and asking people to buy it. Um, so what you want to do is you want to get on BookTok and find the creators that love reading books like yours and then offer to send them a copy and then they make the video about your book. Mm. So that's so. what I did this summer and there have been 60 or 70 videos and I didn't pay these creators. I sent them books for free. They made 60 or 70 videos about my book. And the thing about BookTok is that they love physical books. Like they love having their collections of physical objects, just like I myself love having a collection of physical books. And they love making stacks and arranging them by different categories. So unlike Instagram, where someone might make, a, someone might make one post about my book on Instagram and like pose it with like, you know, a bottle of Glossier perfume and like a jade face roller or whatever and be like self-care by Lee Stein. And there's one post on TikTok, on BookTok, my book comes up again and again and again in different categories and stacks. So if they do a stack of all the pink books they own, someone just did a stack last week of all the books about people starting drama on the internet and self-care was on top. Um, they do reviews where they say, here are all the books I read this week. And they talk about the books on camera. Um, they do recommendations. Like if you like this book, you might also like this book. So there's just such, such variety in how the books are used in the videos that 
the books are circulated again and again and again. And so there are just more eyeballs on it, which is word of mouth marketing. So someone who's just scrolling is like, oh, I keep seeing self-care over and over again. Should I read it? And they'll leave a comment and someone will be like, yeah, I liked it. You should read it. But it's interesting because I think there's this like myth of some kind of pure world where like the only interactions people ever have are via text, right? Like written, the written word and that's it. And that video is somehow like, like you say, like in the piece, like people say it's performative or whatever, but like in the days when people were, you know, only interacting online and there wasn't the internet, there would be like literary salons or hanging out in a bar or coffee shop and talking to other people, you know? So like, there's nothing inherently, or, or and books always would, you know, have covers that people would look at. Like, this isn't all, you know, the idea that the visual is somehow like impossible to reconcile with the text doesn't really quite add up if you just, yeah, I'm rambling, but. No, no, there's, <laughs> yeah, it's just the dismissive attitude that the, the readers on BookTok are not smart just because they know how to make entertaining videos. Um there are some, like, there are just some that I watch, like, from the fan, like, I don't read fantasy or romance either, you know, and, um, but there are some video, cre- there are some creators in that realm that make these just hilarious videos. There's was one I saw the other day where she was, like, crying because she was, she was so upset at the ending of the book, and she kept saying, like, rewrite your book, and so it was, like, an angry crying at the author, but obviously it's, like, and then, but, and then you're, like, what book is this? So sometimes they don't even tell you what the book is and it becomes a mystery to figure out what book they're talking about. So it's almost like an interactive game that they're playing with their audience. Wow. That's remarkable. So um, Leah, I want to be respectful of your time. Let's have final thoughts. Um, Is is there anything else you want to say about your piece? Anything that we should have asked you about? Uh, Any TikTok related thoughts? Any words for your haters? Any words for your haters? I just don't understand the hypocrisy of showing sympathy for all the catapult teachers that lost their source of income this week and calling me a grifter for offering classes that people can pay for with money. And it's ironic too, because a year ago, the last thing I wrote for the website LitHub, the same website that published my book talk piece, the last piece I wrote for them was how I went broke for feminism and went into like $8,000 of debt running a feminist writing conference. And when that piece came out, I got so many messages of sympathy. Like, Lee, I had no idea. Like, I didn't know you were so broke. When you should, you should totally get paid for your work. Writers deserve to get paid. And it's just like so funny to me that it's like, well, do, do they? Or they do, but not me. Other people, other writers do. I mean, yeah, the, the grift thing is is bizarre to in like you say in conjunction with the writers should be paid but it's a grift if they are I mean you get this with Substack, so that's more my world is like the opinion writing stuff and where it's like it's a grift if somebody wants to be paid for their work and is paid for their work by willing people <laughs> like I don't know it's um uh, yeah it's weird Right. But it's like, it's a grift if you're writing things that they, they don't like, you know, it's like, I don't like Hmm. that. Hence you making money off of it is a grift. Uh, If I do like it, you making money off of it is extremely noble and exciting. Right. Yeah. And they, they, they're saying that it's a conflict of interest that I should have disclosed in the piece that I teach classes on this, which is so funny to me because like every writer knows that when their book comes out, they have to go around the internet writing all these pieces to secretly sell their book in the gate, not secretly, openly in the, in the goal of selling copies of their book, they have to write essays on the internet. So what I've done here is I've written an essay on the internet. And if you like my stuff and are curious, you can buy a class from me, but it's, it's no different from writers trying to sell their books by writing essays on the internet. 
Right. And of course, the thing that nobody talks about, um, maybe we we should, I'm going to blow this wide open. Um, <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> those essays that we all dutifully write when we have a novel coming out, um, you know, that we're, the loss of which were being lamented by that person you referenced earlier, Lee, they don't sell a goddamn book, like not a single copy. Nobody buys them. Truth. Truth. The publisher that I quoted when she says like poetry and essays don't work over there. It's like poetry doesn't work. Where, where are you promoting poetry online that does work? Like what website is selling books of poetry? Zero websites. The thing that's selling poetry is like Rupi Carr on Instagram. Like if you're an Instagram poet, if you're Kate Bear, who's killing it, killing it on social media, she's a sensation. That's what's selling copies. I think there's something about, I mean, a lot of people, I, what I saw was this objection to not just like, I find book talk distasteful, but I don't want to use my face. You know, mm. I don't want to like be on camera. I don't want to have my face out there trying to do something. And I wonder if part of it is this sense of like amongst writers um, of being more introverted and being, you know, almost resentful of the times when you have to step out of your writing cave, which is the place where you want to be. You just want to be there with your laptop typing away, like making the story. And the the part where it comes out and you have to actually promote it and you have to try to to get people to buy it. It's like, I mean, straight up, it's the worst part. It's like my least favorite part for sure. And the idea that this is becoming non-optional, I think is creating it like a lot of resentment and a lot of discontent. And I totally get that. And I think maybe my like one regret of, of my piece is that I didn't make it more explicit that I'm not saying get on TikTok and make videos. Cause that's actually not what I'm saying. I'm saying, why aren't you curious to learn about book talk? But I do not think anyone has to go on TikTok and make videos. I just think there's this whole community out there of young women that are making videos about books and like, you can actually like make friends with them. Like you can actually meet them and, and share your book with them and like add your book to the conversation that's happening on this corner of the internet. That's all. That's, that was my point. It's a good point. I took it to mean that there was a gun to somebody's head making them make these videos. <laughs> so that was at least my interpretation, but I'm sad to learn that's not the case. <laughs> yeah. So the, the takeaway here is like, if you don't ever want to get on TikTok, don't get on TikTok. If you are curious, just go poke around. Don't make videos. Just like go see what's happening on BookTok. You can, you can just literally search the title of a book that you like. That's what you can do when you get on the platform and see who's made videos about that and start watching your, their stuff. And that'll lead you down a rabbit hole to other, other creators that are interested in the same kind of books that you read because literary fiction and nonfiction is absolutely a hundred percent on book talk. All right. Well, my takeaway here is that telling people to get on book talk is ableist bigotry, <laughs> but telling people not to get on book talk is racist against the Chinese. <laughs> so you can't win. <laughs> Love no it. <laughs> and uh, this has been Feminine Chaos. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you, Lee. This was amazing. Me. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. 